Bodhi Day. I'm excited to talk about this. Yesterday was Bodhi Day, which is in Buddhist communities, a uh, in some Buddhist communities, a celebration of the Buddha's enlightenment. Bodhi meaning awakening in Sanskrit, uh, if my memory serves me correct. And that was yesterday. There are other uh, sort of holidays around that in Buddhist communities. This one is mostly celebrated, if I remember my history, uh, in Mahayana traditions. But I just thought when I when I re realized that I was thinking, oh, this would be just a great time to kind of just give some perspective on this idea of awakening, which I feel like sometimes we, I don't know, maybe downplay a little bit in American Buddhism or, you know, out of a fear of clinging to it too much or craving the end goal, we might not uh, use it as much as a tool for awakening, like inspiration. And the Buddha really does talk about how it's necessary to desire freedom in order to stick with the path. Um, because we all know how challenging meditation can be. <laughs> so if we don't have some sense that we're going to be getting something out of it, um, it is hard to stay, you know, a meditator. It's it's easy to fall off the path and uh, going back to just sensual pleasures for, for happiness. And uh, so I wanted to talk about awakening and kind of the significance, I guess, of the Buddha's awakening and or how we can see it as being significant to us personally and as a culture. Uh, so I'll just... Uh, kind of go through some points I was reflecting on this week about awakening. And I wanted to just mention a couple things, just the the context of ancient Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, and just a few tidbits here for context. You know, I find it really interesting that we, we don't know much actually about the earliest Theravada Buddhists, or even before that, we don't we don't really know a lot of what was going on in early Buddhist culture as far as the Buddha and the Sangha and stuff like that. And, you know, for hundreds of years before the teachings were written down, it was just passed down teacher to student. So we don't really know what was going on prior to that. What we have is the Pali Canon, which is the oldest extant teachings of the Buddha, uh, the Pali Suttas. And so we use that as the foundation of, of Buddhism. That's where we get the Eightfold Path and the Enlightenment Factors and the Four Foundations and all of those things that you're familiar with. But we really don't know, kind of prior to what we have written down, what was going on. And what I find really interesting is that in spite of that, in spite of this long, hundreds of years before the teachings are really set down, I'm surprised that when you look at the Pali Canon, how clear and coherent a blueprint of the heart and mind that this teaching portrays. And as you know, someone who's been a therapist for a really long time and a social worker and being interested in psychology... Uh, since I was a kid, you know, having come across so many models of human consciousness and so many models of psychology, I'm still amazed to this day how comprehensive, elegant, detailed this model is and how complete it feels when you look at the path and this blueprint that the Buddha lays out. It's just remarkable to me that for thousands of years this has been passed down uh, the way it is. So when I think of the Buddha's enlightenment, I think of this treasure that's been passed down from teacher to student for thousands of years because there's something here worth treasuring, right? There's something here worth honoring. There's something here worth aspiring to. And that, that's how I see the sort of lineage or the legacy is that this, this jewel that's been passed down in every generation, despite the fact that we may not know exactly what the earliest teachings were or what the Buddha actually said or what the Buddha actually taught, we do have thousands of years of these teachings being handed down and practiced 
and people saying, oh, I completed the training. I completed the path. And there is this thing. There is this awakening at the end of the road and that it's worth it to pursue this journey. And so that like reassures me, I guess you could say, when I think of my own practice in my own life, it reassures me to think that there was this awakening. There was this claim to awakening that the Buddha had. And then thousands of years of people really committed to having that same experience and then teaching it to others. And I think that in and of itself is worthy of celebration, that the human ingenuity of discovering and walking such a path is quite amazing, I think. It's quite remarkable that human beings have done this. And it never ceases to amaze me, really. Uh, the other thing I wanted to uh, just mention is that, uh, like I said earlier, I think part of the reason I wanted to just mention awakening today, uh, in spite of the, the holiday, is just that we tend to downplay awakening when we talk about Buddhism oftentimes. And I think from my own experience with teachers and, and myself as a teacher, I know that one of the concerns in talking about awakening is that we don't want ourselves to be too uh, clingy with it, right? We don't want to attach ourselves too much to the goal. Because if we attach ourselves too much to the goal, then it's hard to experience the goal. It's that paradox of Buddhist practice. And yet the Buddha talks about how it's healthy to cultivate a desire and craving and aspiration for awakening. And that that healthy craving for awakening is a part of skillful effort. So I think we need to have a balance between worrying about it too much or wondering about it too much and then completely disregarding it, kind of being too self-effacing, if you will, and not spending enough time reminding ourselves that the Buddha made some discovery and we are attempting to uh, relive that discovery in our own heart and mind. And that's really the foundation of the practice. And when I, when I, when I think of uh, being cautious about uh, talking about awakening, what I think of is the classic kind of image of, you know, parents in a car and they're taking their kids somewhere like, say, Disneyland or something. And the kids are all excited about the end goal. They're like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And the parents are like, don't, we're going to get there. Don't worry about it. You know, just sit back and play on your iPod or something or your iPad or something. And so the parent knows you'll get there eventually. But if you spend too much time jumping up and down in the back seat, worrying about enlightenment, then it's going to be a long ride. And so that's what I kind of think of. I think of that teachers before us are kind of like, you know, you yes, we're going, we're going there. This is where the road goes, but just settle down and let's not get too attached. Let's not get too excited about it. Uh, but you are going there and it's okay to want to be, you know, going there and have some excitement. But we can spend too much time jumping up in the back seat, you know, jumping up and down in the back seat, wondering, oh, is this enlightenment? Or I had this experience in my sit. Is that enlightenment? That overly zealous um, energy can work as a disadvantage to our practice if we're too attached. So I get both ways. I get why uh, we're pretty cautious about talking about this too much. Uh, but I would like to invite you to celebrate it today, and so we're going to talk about it. One thing I think that's important about the Buddha's enlightenment, and certainly not all teachers are going to agree with the way I frame this. This framework has worked well for me, and I, am, I think it's important to at least consider this framework when thinking about the Buddha's discovery, and, and primarily thinking of it as a discovery that something was discovered, that the Buddha set out to see if something was possible, to see if something was available to the human heart. 
he had a question, is it possible to have awakening? Is it possible to have a happiness that's long-term, that's not dependent on outside circumstances, a happiness that's built upon wisdom and compassion and joy? So he really was seeking something specific and wanted to know if it could be awakened within him. So there was a quest that that actually happened. Um, now, again, we don't know if the story of the Buddha's journey is true and in what way it's true, but I'm going to take it at face value for sake of argument. There's certainly tons of psychological truths in the description of his journey. And I wanted to just remind us of the culture that was existing at the time of the Buddha and why what the Buddha discovered was such a big deal and why we might take a moment to celebrate and feel grateful that we've been the bearers of this education, right? Of this lineage, of this blueprint. So when we look at the Buddha's journey, I think it's really important to remember that when the Buddha went out to seek enlightenment, he, like us, sat with teachers. He sat with numerous teachers, in fact, and spent years studying. So it wasn't like he just like left his house and then like, you know, sat down under the tree and was like, oh, I got it, and then kind of moved on with life. There was this whole story of the real hard effort he had to put in to get the experience. So there was this journey that he goes through to figure out whether this awakening, this particular type of awakening that he's seeking, was actually available to, to his heart and mind at the time. And so there's this journey that he goes on. And the reminder here that I want to toss out is that when we look at the story of the Buddha, it's important to remember that there were a, there's a thousand years of spiritual practices prior to the Buddha's teaching. So Hinduism is alive and well. We have a version of yoga that's alive and well. We have non-dual teachings that are alive and well. We have all kinds of mystical teachings that are there that the Buddha is experimenting with and would have been aware of. And so it's really important to remember that the Buddha experimented. He was curious. He was interested. He was interested in learning what other teachers had to say about what they thought enlightenment was. And he wanted to see, okay, if I practice those teachings, am I going to get the enlightenment that I'm seeking? And here's the rub. The rub is that after studying with numerous teachers of his day, the Buddha declared that he was not getting to the enlightenment that he was seeking. And it's a really important point that we often overlook. The Buddha made a declaration after being told by several teachers that he was in fact enlightened and that had he had completed particular trainings of the day. And he said, no, there is still suffering. Deep down inside, there's still suffering. This is not the awakening that I'm looking for. And we don't often remind ourselves of this, but this is the story that we have is that the Buddha really was seeking something and could not find it amongst the teachers of his day. And the reason I want to bring that up is because what it does is reframe the Buddha's enlightenment as a discovery of something that wasn't already there. It was an insight that he had that he had to create built on what he had learned from other teachers. But his take was that he went beyond what was already present and discovered something new. Now, to clarify the newness of it, though, the Buddha does say, as far as we know in the teachings, uh, the Buddha does say that what he discovered had been discovered before by other human beings. It wasn't like a completely new discovery, right? So he says, people before me have had this awakening and have gotten this awakening in this way. 
However, it wasn't available at the time. It wasn't the paths that he was experimenting with were not taking him to where he got to. So it was a discovery for him. But in his awakening, there was the insight, oh, people have had this discovery. There have been Buddhas before me is the way that it's put. And that's really interesting, I think, for us to remember that this awakening is a human discovery. The way we would celebrate someone discovering a cure for cancer or coming up with a vaccine for COVID, for that matter, that celebration of human creativity, human journey, human ingenuity and courage and intentionality, the human, the human celebration here of that connectivity of a person going out and trying to discover something. So his awakening is a discovery. And I really think it's interesting and helpful to see it that way. Another reason I bring that up when we're discussing enlightenment, uh, or his enlightenment anyway, is that at the time of the Buddha, there were a variety of different contemporaries that are mentioned in the Pali Suttas. For example, the Buddha talked about traditions where uh, love was considered to be the only practice necessary for liberation. There were other traditions where mystical experiences were considered to be the end of the path. And so the reason I mention this is that it's very easy to think that the Buddha was just another mystic on the block, right? That he was pursuing love and kindness, he was pursuing mystical experiences, and that maybe his path was just another version of the love traditions, the mystical traditions, the non-dual traditions of the day. And I really want to bring up this point because in American Buddhism, over the course of the last 50, 60 years, it is really common now for us to kind of see the Buddha as just another mystic, just another person who had an enlightenment like all the other enlightenments. And I would invite us to consider this story that we have that the Buddha was not finding enlightenment at his time and really did come up with something very unique and very different from other traditions. And a couple examples of the difference that the Buddha had insight to, and I'm not going to go into details because it's those would be Dharma talks unto themselves, but just as a sort of celebration of the uniqueness of the Buddha's creativity and ingenuity is to remind us that, for example, the Buddha's idea of karma very different from the idea of karma of the day. The Buddha's idea of the seven enlightenment factors, also a very unique description of the inner workings of human consciousness. And you all know how like obsessed I am with the seven factors of awakening as a foundation for the Eightfold Path. It's been a big doorway for me, for my practice, and I'm always like enamored by the fact that that was a really unique model that the Buddha created with his factors of awakening. Another thing that was very different is that at the time of the Buddha, many traditions saw non-dual or mystical experiences as enlightenment. And when the Buddha comes along historically, he says that there's something beyond those experiences, which was very confrontational, right? It was very confrontational to say that oneness or a non-dual experience was not the end goal. And so the Buddha comes along with this history of non-dual teachers and puts a wrench in the machine, so to speak, uh, stick in the spokes. And there's some confrontation there between the early Buddhist tradition and the mystics of the time. And so again, I mention this as a way of honoring and celebrating the uniqueness 
of the Buddha's discovery and encouraging you to look at it as that, a discovery, not just another path amongst a bunch of paths, but that we really look and see the differences that the Buddha said were unique to his vision of what enlightenment is, or at least it was for him. And myself, not being enlightened, I cannot vouch for <laughs> that difference personally, but I think it is important to celebrate uh, these differences because they are there in the practice. Another reason I mention this is it can be very easy in Western culture to take the depth of the Dharma, the complexity of the Dharma, and try to reduce it down to something more palatable, more simple to understand, more easy to uh, insert into our lives. And as much as I appreciate that as a practitioner, certainly, I think it's important to remember that part of the Buddha's genius, for lack of a better word, was that he really honored the complexity of the human heart. He really honored the complexity of the human mind. And he really threw out a path that was highly detailed, even though as a teacher he had to have known <laughs> that this was going to be something where a lot of people were like, oh my God, eight folds? Like, why can't we have two folds? Like, why does it have to be an eightfold path? That seems like a lot of work. Can't we just... Like, can't we just do what's already here? Why do we have to do all this other stuff? And so as much as I appreciate reducing things down for simplicity and ease of practice and ease of teaching, I have a certain admiration for the fact that the Buddha laid out a path that had some complexity to it, that really honored the complexity and balance of love and compassion, joy and equanimity, right? Balance of mind with curiosity. So when you look at the Dharma, when I think of celebrating awakening, I think of celebrating and honoring the fact that the Buddha was true to himself in his journey and was willing to say, look, here's this other path. It's not the path that you're used to. You might not like this, right? When he got enlightened, the Buddha's friends actually <laughs> initially were very skeptical. And when he went off to create his own path, they had essentially said that he had sold out that he was on the wrong path and that he was doing the wrong stuff and that he had sort of forsaken spirituality because he went off to find something that was going to work for himself. So I really think when I think of admiring and celebrating awakening, I think of this process he had to go through to get to that. And the fact that we go through a similar process in ourselves when we try to uh, walk this path and create that same awakening experience in our hearts and in our minds. So the take-home here is just an invitation to look at the Buddha's practice as a discovery. A discovery of something that was not on the playing field at the time. And that the Buddha saw past a lot of the limits for some of the reductive paths that, that were there at the time. And it didn't work for him and he had the courage to try and go further to meet his needs for what he called enlightenment. And to celebrate that, right? To celebrate those qualities and those traits and to honor that part of the practice. Another thing I wanted to mention is that the celebration of the enlightenment is really something that's very personal for us as human beings. Because when the Buddha got enlightened, his teaching basically said everyone can do this. He didn't say, I'm enlightened, by the way, I'm special, good luck to you. He said, I did this, you can do this, come with me, let's do this, let's do this together, let's create a community where we come together and become awakened. And so there's this humbleness and there's this faith in the Buddha's humanity. Like one of the interesting things about 
taking refuge in Buddha is that for those of us who come with a Judeo-Christian upbringing, we are often familiar with this idea of having faith in the divinity of Christ, where in the Buddha it's flipped on its head and we're asked to have faith in his humanity. Not that you don't have that in Christianity, but there's a focus. So in the Dharma, we're asked not to elevate the Buddha into something special, but to honor the Buddha as ourselves, right? The Buddha was like, we can do this. It's Buddha nature. We have this nature to awaken. Let's celebrate this potentiality of awakening together in community. So that's another thing about when we celebrate the fact, so to speak, of the Buddha's awakening, what we're really saying is, I'm capable of this. This is my birthright. I have the capacity to live to my full potential as a human being. And if we're lucky, we get to practice in an awesome community of kind, loving people where we can do this together, all together. So I would invite you to think of the Buddha's awakening as not his awakening, but our awakening, this invitation for us to awaken, right? It wasn't about him. It was about a discovery of our inner potential to be free. And then it becomes personalized. It's kind of like... <laughs> I don't know if this is the right metaphor, but this just came into my head. It's kind of like, you know, we can celebrate the Buddha's awakening on Bodhi Day the way you'd go to somebody else's birthday party and you're happy for them that they have a birthday and you celebrate. But as a kid, you kind of wish you got the gifts, you know, you're a little bit jealous, you know, you might celebrate it. Yes, great that the Buddha got awakened, but, you know, we get our own awakening day as well, right? We also get this. It's a celebration of us, uh, us as well. So we personalize it. We personalize awakening. It's not just about the Buddha. We don't have to worship the Buddha or anything like that. We just honor and respect and have a sense of gratitude that we are now bearers of this blueprint for our own awakening. And it can be very personal for us. Another thing that I think is interesting, and this happens a lot. This happens with me uh, in the beginning of my practice. Oftentimes, I think we come to Dharma, well, I know from experience, we all come to Dharma with our own dukkha, right? Our own suffering, our own discontent. Some of us come because we're stressed. Some of us are curious spiritual seekers. Some of us are coming from trauma. Some of us want uh, a different sense of grace and ease in the world. Some of us have a sense of wanting to grow and change and have a sense of watching ourselves become more generous and compassionate. We all come to the Dharma on our own path, on our own sort of off-ramp. And so many of us, when we get into the Dharma, when we think of awakening, we kind of think of that's for other people. You know, I'm here just to have this thing, and awakening is for other people. That's for those other serious practitioners, and that's for people who take this, or whatever the case may be. And I know in my own uh, experience, when I was young as a meditator, a younger meditator, and I was young when I started meditating in my teens, you know, people would ask me about enlightenment and I would say, I, I don't care about that. I'm just, I like the way this makes me feel, which was very honest at the time and practical. Um, but people would ask me about enlightenment, what I thought about it. And my response was always like, I'm not here for that. I'm just here because I'm really anxious and I need to sleep better. And I have like these bad headaches and meditation really helps with that. So for me, awakening was just a good night's sleep, right? That like early on, this is my experience. And I put Awakening, capital A, way out on the horizon and attribute that to other, to other folks. 
Now, part of the reason I did that was because I had an immediate suffering that I really wanted to get over and meditation was helping. And that freedom was what brought me back day to day to the cushion, to the retreats, to the community. But as I grew in the Dharma, it also became evident to me that part of the reason that I sort of pushed awakening out as something unattainable was I didn't really understand what it was, right? I didn't really get what it was. It seemed like an unattainable thing, and it seemed like something way beyond my skill set, for lack of a better word, which I think we all have to some degree. But I think what's become helpful for me over the years is just to see awakening as living into our full potential as human beings, to awaken the greatest potential for us as human beings. It's not uh, greedy to want awakening. It's not arrogant to think you're capable of it. That's not how we pursue enlightenment, at least in the Dharma, at least in traditional Buddhism. And I would invite you to consider that, that it's not greedy, it's not arrogant, it's not beyond your means, it's not for other people, it's for you, because the Buddha was like you. He was just another person who had an interest to know if he could be happy and if he could be free. And I know I'm not the only one in this room, this digital room, that wants to be happier, more compassionate, less stressed, more filled with joy, right? I want to live to my full potential. And I know for the most part, as we walk through the world as human beings, we ask ourselves, what, it, what is it really to be human, right? What is it really to live this life? And if you think about it, imagine at the end of your life, reflecting back on the on the life that you've lived, it wouldn't make sense to think that you would regret having lived a life where you aspired to be filled with joy and compassion. It wouldn't make sense that you would regret wanting to live to your true potential as a you You wouldn't say to yourself, gosh, you know, that decision I made to be fully human and to live fully and to serve with love and generosity, man, that was a huge mistake. I really should have saw that one being a dead end. Like we don't, we don't have that in our lives, right? And we don't see teachers who are much more advanced than I am, who've lived this Dharma for many more years. We don't see them saying, turn back, like go the other direction. You do not want to aspire to be compassionate and wise. There's something, you know, so we don't see that kind of regret for aspiring to live to our full potential. And yet we kind of see it as not our birthright to do that, right? We have this aversion to really living into this concept of awakening. So I would invite you to befriend and celebrate this idea without attachment or less attachment, you know, and to consider it to be something you are fully capable of living into. And if the word awakening is too weird and too bizarre and too lofty, I would suggest you replace it with your full potential as a human being. What is your highest aspiration? Make that your awakening and pursue that within your dharma. And make that the steps that you walk day to day to awaken yourself and to, to serve others in that awakening. And that makes it a little bit more palatable if, if that's the case. And I know that I do do that with my, own, with my own practice. The last thing I wanted to say about how we might celebrate this concept of awakening is just to remind ourselves again of this journey that the Buddha went on, this journey of discovery, and reminding ourselves that to be a human being is to discover what it is to be a human being, right? To live the life of a human being is to constantly ask ourselves, what am I? Who am I? What am I capable of becoming? How am I capable of being in relationship? 
and aspiring to be different, to grow, to change, right? To be fully what we think we are. And looking at the Buddha's journey, that's what the Buddha's journey was. He left his home. He made a huge sacrifice, although it was culturally normative at the time for folks to leave. Well, in the patriarchal setup that it was for men, of course, to leave. Women had to stay home. But uh, there were nuns, of course, and women did take robes and there were uh, ascetics uh, who were women. But there was still that very patriarchal setup where it was very common for men to leave home, of course, and to go off on the spiritual quest. But the journey that each of us can take is very similar. And there's three things that I'm reminded of when you look at the Buddha's journey that I take in uh, as qualities I like to aspire to or remind myself of in my practice. And these, these are uh, these three. The Buddha was willing to experiment and be creative on his path. He met with different teachers, he tried out different techniques, and he wasn't willing to settle for anything less than his highest aspiration. He was willing to course correct when it wasn't working out with him, right? When things weren't working, when he met a teacher and it wasn't getting him where he wanted to go, then he started studying with a different teacher. And you see this person who's really determined, who really has patience and persistence with himself and is just not willing to settle for anything less than he can imagine being, which is this awakened being. And I would invite you to consider that in your life. What would it be to live a life where you don't settle for less than your highest aspiration? your highest awakening? What would it be for you to have the deepest relationships with your friends and family? What would it be for you to have the deepest spiritual practice that you can imagine? And for you, when you think of that, imagine the Buddha asking that same question, right? What is it to aspire to be awakened? And so this is really helpful to me because then I can make this awakening practical, right? I can ground it in my life in a really practical way while still honoring this this fact, so to speak, of an ultimate awakening that the Buddha talks about, which I believe that is true. But here's a way of bringing it home into practicality, into daily life. One more thing I'll say in conclusion. As I mentioned earlier, when the Buddha set off and left the mystical paths that were not working for him and aspired to try and find a path that would work for him, his friends dissed on him, right? They were like, you're selling out. You're not going to find it. You're not really a mystic anymore. And so he, he went rogue. He went solo and went off on his journey, grounding this just in traditional psychology. It is very common when a human being aspires to something beyond what is normal. It is common for those around that person to not offer support. To say that you're seeking too high, it's a waste of time, you're never going to get there, who are you to do that thing? As a human being, I know I'm not the only person in, my in this room who has aspired to do something and has not gotten the appropriate support from friends, from family, from teachers, from whoever, that we really wanted to cheer us on, right? Who we wanted support from. And it's really common when a human being gets into the game of life and says, I'm going to aspire to this great thing, right? I'm going to throw a lofty aspiration up and I'm going to pursue this. It can be intimidating for other people when they hear someone talk about that, right? It can be intimidating when someone is pursuing something really courageously 
And I know in my life, there's been times where I've been so excited about the Dharma and I'm so excited about, you know, whatever, jhana or enlightenment or whatever it is. And I've been met with a downer, right? Someone is kind of like, geez, why are you so enthusiastic about meditation? My God, what is your problem? Like, I've, I've had that before, right? With people that I really expected to support me. And so this is that reminder that when you aspire to something like awakening, it's really important to be in community and surround yourself with people who will cheer you on, who will love and care for you and think that you are worth awakening, right? That you are worth taking that journey and they are going to walk alongside you. And this is where we come to Sangha, right? That awakening occurs in Sangha in part because when a human being aspires to be loving, compassionate, awake, aware, generous, a lot of people find that to be a cra crazy to think that that would be, that that lofty ambition is something worth doing. And so in your community, you can find support and care and a courteousness with other people who are willing to be your cheerleader for the Dharma, which is why we come every week, right? I go away from these meetings and I'm totally inspired to practice, to practice more. And I don't feel so weird that I spend a lot of time on a meditation cushion, right? Or I might spend a week in silence because I know I am and we are on this path of waking up and we're doing it together. And it's something we're celebrating and something we're doing. So on that note, happy Bodhi day. It's one day off. And let me say this, I am, as a teacher, fully committed to your awakening. Like, I believe that everyone in this room can be awakened. I think it's a worthy endeavor. I think it's an amazing life when you get on the path and practice in a community like this. And I'm here to support you and cheer you on, no matter what you need. So I just want to say, you know, happy Bodhi Day. Like, I think that everyone should be uh, aspiring to whatever that higher aspiration is. And don't let anybody tell you to be less than you can imagine in your life because it's worth, it's worth living a life like that. There's no regret in my belief at the end of life if you live with that aspiration of freedom. I think it's a worthy aspiration and that's why I get so excited about the Dharma. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for celebrating this path with me. So good to see you all. Let's go back and plop for a few minutes and get some metta in so we can remember why we're truly here. And uh, we'll call it a night. Take a long, slow, deep breath in. Bringing some breath energy into the body, falling back into presence. We've been doing a lot of listening, maybe some thinking. Let us put aside thoughts. Let us put aside everything but what is so in this moment. Back to breath body, back to sitting, the simplicity of being. For all our lofty aspirations and ambitions, the practice itself 
occurs in only one place, this moment. Awake and aware to this ever-changing, impermanent phenomena, this heart-mind, this breath-body. Let us remind ourselves that we aspire to awakening so we may show up in the world in service to others. Our aspiration to be free is in service to the freedom of all beings. And our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free from suffering for all beings to know love and joy, safety and security, comfort and compassion. May all beings be free from suffering. And may our awakening serve that. May our awakening serve all beings in their freedom from suffering. May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Much gratitude, my friends, for you choosing to share your evening with us all. Thank you so much. Lovely to see you. Thanks for your time and your attention. And I am cheering you on from the sidelines for your aspiration to be wise, compassionate, and loving beings. I will see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Be safe. Be well. <laughs>